0: Well, it's good to be back among you after being gone at General Conference this last week in Orlando, Florida. I brought back a lot of experience and uh, hopefully some some uh, ways in which I th- can think about our life together as Free Methodists, but. I also brought home the mother of all head colds with me. And so I'm like sick. Like sick? Is that a thing? Like sick? No, I'm sick. And so I'm staying away from all of y'all, all right? So this is as close as we're going to get today, because I don't want to infect you with what I got. I don't have COVID. I know that for sure, but I feel terrible. So anyways, with that said, here we are. We're going to have a sermon today. Before I do anything, why don't we pray? Father, we give you thanks. Thanks for the opportunity to be together this day in worship. Whether we are gathered here in the sanctuary or online, we pray, God, for your Holy Spirit to speak and move. And, Lord, you quite know what little I have to give this day. So I pray, God, that your word would go forth In spite of and because of what I struggle with this day Bless us as we gather for worship For we have come together in the name of Jesus To experience your mighty presence and power This we pray in his name, amen All right, friends Uh, You may, um, I also need to say because I'm sick with a cold We were going to have a prayer walk this afternoon Which I was going to lead I can't walk one and a half miles around Queen Anne today I can walk from my office to here. So that's, I I did a good job with that. So we're going to postpone our prayer walk that was scheduled for today. we're going to have another one already scheduled in August. So watch your newsletter that comes in the email about the prayer walk we're going to do coming up in August, all right? All right, now with that being said, the prayer walk is uh, kind of foreign to me in some ways. I'm learning how to do them. uh, Because I'm from LA, and if we're going to pray, we pray and drive. We don't pray and walk, all right? we pray and drive. Now, I am from the land of the kingdom of the car. And so what that means for us is that we use a car everywhere to get around. We even use a car to move from one side of a parking lot to another side of a parking lot when we're at a particular destination where we need to go to two different locations while we're there. Now, here's the freeway system in the city of Seattle. I got this lovely photo off the web. You can kind of see that there's You know this lake in the middle called Lake Washington, there's a freeway that runs on one side, a freeway that runs on another, and one or two that intersect. But if any of you are from the place I hail from, Southern California, this is what our freeway system looks like when you get around. And uh, you can always spot a Southern Californian because we say the word the in front of the number of whatever freeway we're talking about. And so today we're talking about crossroads, interchanges, and new possibilities. And so um, one of the interchanges in Los Angeles that's one of the most daunting for people who don't travel there very often is this one here it is
1: from the air it's one of the most complex freeway interchanges in the world that's even been featured in the movies speed and la la land and tonight's look at this kcal 9's desmond shaw takes us to the busy interchange of the 105 and 110 freeways Well, take a look at this concrete behemoth in South LA. It is the junction between the 105 and the 110, opened in 1993, soaring as high as 130 feet high. And according to the LA Times, when it opened, it was the largest, most costly interchange ever built by Caltrans and it was also the first interchange to incorporate three modes of transportation. Here in the middle of the 105 is the Metro Green Line. There's a station right there. At the bottom of the stack is the Harbor Transportation Center which is a big bus depot. You can see that there at the bottom and then of course you have connector ramps not just for single drivers but also for carpoolers. So if you're in the carpool lane you have your own connection. Here, you don't have to get all the way over to the right. So that's why there's so many big flyover ramps here. I counted eight, actually. The only one that does not have its own carpool connection is the West 105 to the southbound 110. But other than that, that is uh, pretty convenient.
0: How would you like to drive through that? Anyone? All right. Yeah, that's in South Los Angeles. And uh, it's quite the experience going through it. It'd be daunting if you've never seen something like that before and have to engage in going through an interchange like that. There are interchanges and transitions and possibilities coming to us all the time. And it's not just on a freeway. It's in our life. We have decisions to make all the time. Psychologists and others track this notion that we're facing more and more nowadays of decision fatigue. That as we go through a day having made so many decisions, by the time we get to the end of the day, we're tired of making decisions. We're tired of making choices. That's why when you're having that conversation in the evening, what should we have for dinner, and nobody wants to decide, that's decision fatigue that has set in. We're starting a new series today called Serve the World, in which we're exploring how it is we as a church engage in mission. And mission for us is always an opportunity to go through an interchange, a transition, to move from one way of being to another way of being. And this coming Saturday, we're sending eight people from our church to Columbia on a short-term mission trip. And this morning, I want to talk with you first, among three weeks of this series, about why it is we're doing that and why we think that's important and why all of us are actually involved in that mission trip, not just those eight individuals that are going to Colombia. And so what we learn in this story from Acts chapter 10 is some important wisdom that can guide us as we think about how we do the work of mission. And how we engage with people that are new to us, but not new to God at all. Acts chapter 10 is a story about giving new directions. New directions. The story up to this point, which we kind of dropped you into the middle of it in Acts chapter 10, opens with a man named Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion. And he lives in a place along the Mediterranean coast up to the northern part of Palestine, a place called Caesarea Maritima. It's where the palace of the Roman governor is located who rules over that area of the Roman Empire. And that's where Cornelius lives. God speaks to Cornelius, a Roman centurion. In other words, he commands roughly 100 Roman soldiers and tells him send people to go down to Joppa, which is just down the coast, about 25 miles, and when you get to Joppa, go to the house of Simon the Tanner, and when you get there, you're going to find a guy named Peter, get him, and bring him back. And so Cornelius sends the servants, they arrive, and on their way, while the servants are going to Joppa, there's Peter praying up on top of the roof of the house of Simon the Tanner, And as he's praying, he has a vision of this sheet that descends out of heaven, and it's filled with all sorts of unkosher food, food that no Jewish person should be eating, like a plate of sizzling, delicious bacon, (laughs) cheeseburgers, all sorts of things that cannot be eaten on a kosher diet. And the voice that comes from heaven tells Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, well, I I can't do that. All of this stuff is unclean, basically. And then the voice says, what I have called clean, you do not call unclean. Vision is over, and as soon as the vision ends, knock, knock, knock at the door. Cornelius's messengers have arrived. They stay the night there with Peter. In the morning, Peter goes with them, along with a couple of other servants of Peter, back to Caesarea Maritima, where they're going to meet Cornelius. And the scripture we read today is the beginning of that conversation. When Peter arrives at Cornelius' home, what happens? This is a story about getting new directions and getting directions. Now, each of these individuals, Cornelius and Peter, had to discern if they were really being led by the Lord. Like when Cornelius was at his house and God spoke to him, he had to say to himself, is that really God or not? And likewise, when Peter has the vision of the sheet coming down from heaven with all the foods on it he's not supposed to eat, he has to discern if that vision is really from God or was he just really hungry for a cheeseburger. One way or another, he's got to sort that out. You see, these are complex things. These are complex questions they're trying to address. Why would Cornelius send for a guy named Peter he doesn't know of and he's never met? Why would Peter leave Joppa and go to Cornelius' home, someone he's never known and never met, And to be honest, he works for the very same people that killed Jesus. So why would he do that? This is complex. And so when we talk about our work of being in mission and serving other people, what we find in this story between Cornelius and Peter are are some nuggets of wisdom that can help us out along the way. One of the temptations that Peter has to face is his own fear his fear of going to Cornelius' house. Cornelius is a Roman soldier. It was Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus. And so it's like going into the den of the enemy. It's actually going to the place that in many ways he should least want to go to, but yet God calls him to go. Not only is he called to go, But for the most part, within the Jewish community of the first century in Palestine, they weren't even allowed to go into the home of a Gentile. They weren't allowed to have a meal with a Gentile for fear of violating Jewish custom and Jewish law. The Jewish community was so afraid in many ways that they were insular from all these other communities around them. Fear is a powerful force. Fear might say it's not worth the risk. It's not worth going into spaces that don't appear to be safe or normal. But yet Peter goes. Now, there's another temptation, which isn't fear. It's to flex. And by flex, I mean to flex power in one way or another. Remember, the Romans were the power of the ancient world. And they had power over other people's lives, power that was rather arbitrary, to be honest. And so what happens in this story is that Cornelius has all the power in the story according to the standard of that day. He's a Roman centurion. Peter is a Galilean fisherman who's working on his tan on the top of Simon the Tanner's house. These people come from two different places in the spectrum of power. And it's interesting how the story unfolds in a few moments when Peter arrives at Cornelius' house, the balance of power completely shifts. That when Peter gets to Cornelius' house, Cornelius bows down and worships him. You see how it changes in the story? How power moves from one place to the other. Perhaps you've heard these words before. Colonialism. Empire. You know, Christianity for... Its uh, second millennium from 1,000 A.D. forward has been guilty on a number of occasions of colonialism in a variety of different expressions. Colonialism is this impulse to take and conquer territory and people that are not yours. And with colonialism comes a whole bunch of different problems that impacted the way the church expanded on its mission for almost a thousand years. So that when missionaries of the Roman Catholic Church or other churches arrived in a new place with a new group of people who were indigenous people, they would not only share the gospel with them, they would force those individuals to comply with their own culture in a way in which individuals were derailed from their way of life, their own culture, their own sense of being. And so it became very difficult to separate the message of the gospel of Christianity from the culture that was being inflicted upon people. It's strangely quiet in this room. Colonialism is a problem. It's a problem the church wrestled with for a thousand years. It's a problem it still wrestles with even to this day, in the which we have the incapacity to understand our own culture relative to the culture we seek to serve and engage. The most egregious form of colonialism that was was practiced practically in the latter half of the second millennium is slavery. The capturing and conquering of people and enslaving them. A horrendous evil perpetrated in the name of Jesus. It's something for which we must confess. Agree upon that that way of doing mission Is not of God Rather it's of the devil Now in all this seriousness of what's going on in the story What I want you to recognize is simply this Is that the direction for Cornelius And the direction for Peter are set So that they have a meeting together And those directions for each of them Invited them to do something That they wouldn't normally do They wouldn't normally do They took an off-ramp They don't normally take They went in a direction They normally wouldn't go So God is giving some direction here For there to be a meeting And a connection to take place Between the two of them And so when we think about the work that we do The work that we do outside the four walls of this church We have to approach it from the same kind of mindset A little bit of curiosity A little bit of wonder about what's going on. What's the next step that we take? How do we learn something maybe we don't know? And I want you to take note that in the story that the Spirit is already at work in the place where each of them is going. Notice how the Spirit of God was at work in Peter before Cornelius' messengers arrived. And God was at work in Cornelius before he even sent messengers to go get Peter. The Holy Spirit's already at work before anyone has an awareness of it. The grace of God is moving when we're not paying attention to it. We Wesleyans call that prevenient grace. It's the grace of God at work in our lives before we even have an awareness of it. It's one of the principal affirmations we have as Methodist people that God is always at work that God is always moving, that God is always engaging with humans even when we can't see it. And so what we have to do, like Cornelius and like Peter, is set out in trust. The choice to act here is really important. Cornelius, when he has this this, uh, message that's given to him by God, he sends messengers. Peter makes the same choice to respond in kind. One of the great ironies of the story that I find wonderful is that Peter is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner in a city along the Mediterranean coast called Joppa. If you go to the Holy Land, you can go to Joppa today, you can go to the house, it's still there, where Peter was working on his tan on the roof. Joppa is the place where the messengers of Cornelius come, tell Peter, Cornelius has asked for you to come to his house, so Peter has to decide, am I going to stay or am I going to go? Am I going to stay here in Joppa or am I going to go to Caesarea Maritima, the headquarters of the Roman Empire in the region? Should I even do that? The irony is lost because it's the same exact town, Joppa, where God came to a man called Jonah and said to him, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and to preach my word to them and Jonah, instead of going to Nineveh, where would he go? He took a cruise. He went to sea. The story in Acts 10 is rich. Because where Jonah failed, Peter succeeds. He does the very thing that Jonah couldn't do. And you know, in our lives and in the way we think about the work that we do as a church oftentimes we want everything mapped out. Does Peter know why he's going to Cornelius' house? Nope. Does Cornelius know why he's supposed to go get Peter? Nope. All they know is exactly what they've been told, and they respond to exactly what they've been told to do. Cornelius and Peter are in perfect step with each other in the story. Because often we want it all mapped out. As the pastor who's only been here a year, I get asked often, Pastor, where do you see our church going? You've heard my answer to this already, haven't you? I don't know. (laughs) But we're going to find out together where God is calling us to go. All we need to do is be faithful. Faithful to the way God is leading us and moving us and take one step at a time in faithful obedience to the holy spirit and we will trust that we will get to the place god needs us to go don't worry about the destination worry about the journey one step at a time so sometimes our assumptions and about ourselves and others can take us away from god's call remember why would peter want to go to the roman headquarters why would cornelius ask for a galilean fisherman named peter these questions oftentimes don't make sense to us. You know, to be honest, on Saturday when our group leaves, we're sending eight people in our church to Columbia. You're aware that sending people to Colombia is a risk. So we won't be Pollyanna about that. So it's one thing for me to stand up here and say, oh, Colombia's fine, don't worry about it, it'll be good. Don't. Sending people anywhere right now is a risk. But we're going because we believe God's called us to go. And eight people have responded to that call. And many of you in the congregation have decided you want to be partners in that call. You know how much money this congregation has given to support our team going to Columbia? $11,300. That's the total as of today. It keeps going up because people keep hearing about this opportunity and saying, there's gotta be a way I can participate in what God is doing. This is risky business. Now, don't get me wrong, we're not sending people into imminent danger, right, Pastor Camille? All right. (laughs) But anytime you send people abroad, there's always gonna be risk involved. So many of you have given financially to support the Columbia Mission, but I want to encourage you to pick up one of these today. This is the Mission Trip Prayer Guide. And it's the little booklet that you can use starting this Saturday to be in prayer for our team every single day that they're on this mission trip. When you open it up inside, there's going to be information about what they're going to be doing on that particular day. And the Scripture and prayer and questions and devotions that you can be with them in the Spirit even though you're not going to be with them physically. We have these in the back as you leave this morning in the foyer to pick one of these up. Because what is evident to me is that over these last six or eight weeks, this congregation is eager to participate in this mission. Not only by giving financially, but by prayers, by hearing testimonies and the words that are coming forth. So do we know what's going to happen in Colombia? No. We know where you're going, some of the stuff you're going to do, but we don't know what the outcome is going to go. All we know is that we need to go. And then we'll figure out the next step when we get to the next step. We have to be aware that being saviors from America is a great risk when you go do a mission trip, isn't it? And that's not what we want to have happen. Notice how Cornelius responded to Peter when he arrived. Peter shows up, and what does Cornelius do? Do you remember what it said? Bowed down and worshipped him. So it would be easy for us to go to Columbia as affluent Americans, holding all of our cash in our pocket and just paying for stuff and doing stuff. This is a model of doing mission that's broken. Our model is different. And we're trying to live into it in a different sort of way. When Peter arrives at Cornelius' house, he says something important in verse 29 of Acts chapter 10. Peter gets there, he sees Cornelius for the first time, and Peter says this For what reason did you send for me? In this whole story, it's got to be one of my favorite verses. Because when Peter arrives, he doesn't say, thank God I'm here. What's he say? For what reason did you send me? Send for me. There's this sense of openness, sense of wonder, sense of uncertainty in his question. And as I'm praying for our team of eight people going to Columbia, that's what I'm praying for them is that they hold that question. When you arrive, why have you sent for me? How can I be with you? And the last piece of this puzzle that I think is so compelling is the story in Acts 10 ends with two conversions. It ends with the conversion of Cornelius. So Cornelius is what's called a God-fearing Gentile. In other words, he believes in the Jewish God, but he's not a practicing Jew. Make sense? And so Cornelius summons Peter and tells Peter, well, the reason I brought you here is because I want you to give to us the word that God has given to you for us. And so then Peter begins to preach and explain the gospel. And as he explains the gospel, Cornelius and his entire household want to be baptized. And so Peter baptizes all of them. This is a monumental story in the book of Acts because it's the first true Gentile who's become a believer. He's not Jewish. He's not marginally Jewish. He's not even kind of associated with the Jews. The only alignment with the Jews he has is geography. He happens to be stationed in a place where there are Jews. He's the first Gentile convert to Christianity. And Acts makes a big deal out of marking these thresholds as it tells the story of the early church. It tells us about the first Gentile convert, the first Samaritan convert, the first Ethiopian convert, the first European convert. All of these people are benchmarks in the story of the book of Acts. Cornelius' life has changed. He has a conversion experience. But that's not the only conversion experience. What's the other one? Peter has a conversion experience. Because before this story started, do you think Peter would have gone to a Roman centurion's house? No. Would he go eat food served to him by a Roman centurion? No. It was forbidden by Jewish law and custom. So what Peter says at the end of the reading that we heard a few moments ago is Peter says, Now I know that God certainly shows no partiality. Remember the vision of the unclean food that comes out of heaven on that blanket? What God told Peter to do in that vision, rise, kill, and eat, was Peter breaking Jewish law, not Jewish tradition, Jewish law. All the foods that were on that blanket were forbidden for him to eat according to Leviticus. Yet he's told to eat them. Now, the side note here, and the word of caution to all of us today, is anyone who goes around quoting Old Testament passages of Scripture telling you what you can and can't do, you should be careful with that. Because apparently in the New Testament, God has no problem canceling some of those things, like kosher law. So Peter goes off and preaches the gospel. Peter himself is converted. Peter himself is converted. Who knows what will happen in Colombia? Who knows how the eight people we send there are going to be changed? How they're going to change us? How the world might be changed? We don't know. But as they prepare to go, I'd offer you these five things. That was just the introduction to the sermon. Did you know that? I'm on Sudafed, I'm a little punchy, all right? here are five things I think we need to remember about our team as they go on mission first. Serving the world is about mutuality. It's about mutuality. And that mutuality word may be new for you. What I mean is that missions is mutual. That it not only involves us bringing who we are to the people we will connect with in Colombia, but it also means that the people in Colombia and who they are and what they're doing and what their practices and culture are Are going to come to us. So when we arrive, we don't go there better than or worse than anyone else. We simply go in mutuality. We say, We're here to come alongside you, with you, not for you, with you. The second thing I think is important for us to remember is that serving the world is absent of power. Serving the world is absent of power. Did you notice in the story, as I mentioned, how the power changes? Roman centurion, Galilean fisherman. And then all of a sudden it becomes Galilean fisherman, Roman Centurion. When Cornelius bows at Peter's feet and worships him, Peter says, Stop. I'm just a man like you. So serving the world is absent of power. And so what happens oftentimes for us in the life of the church, we still sit a little bit in the colonial mindset. And the colonial mindset is this: we have, you need. So I'm coming to you. To take care of your need. Instead, we need to go saying, you have, we have, and we're going to share it together. It's a different way of looking at it. The third thing, serving the world is about being with others, not for others, with others. That word with is important. There's a whole book written about that word with by The British scholar Sam Wells, he talks about this in his book, The Nazareth Manifesto, and how important this word with is, that we don't bring an agenda, we don't bring any of our preconceived notions or assumptions, what we do is we just are with people and let God do the amazing work when we're with them. The fourth thing is that serving the world is about building relationships. The notion of this missions team going to Colombia is that they're going to build relationships with women and men who are in ministry in Colombia, and that there's going to be relationships cultivated and developed that are going to become a bridge by which we can build new and deeper relationships and those eight people are going to come back here and are going to be able to tell us about those relationships and we'll be blessed. And the fifth thing is this, Serving the world leaves space for God to show up. Leaves space for God to show up. And that means that there's times we don't have planned out, we don't know what the outcomes are, we're not quite sure what's going to happen, we're just going to take the next step. So the next step is Saturday, eight people are going to the airport. And that's where it begins. And we'll see what happens. We'll trust God with the outcome, whatever it's going to be. We know that taking these, taking these steps are important because we haven't sent a group of people in our church on a short-term mission trip in over a decade. Over a decade. And so the time has come for us to mobilize as a church. We must mobilize outside of our four walls. Staying inside our four walls as a church have proven to us What? puts us on the path of no longer being here. So no matter how many people are here, 10 people, 100 people, 500 people, our eyeballs are turned outward, into the world, into the community. Yes, you're going to face interchanges and crossroads and all sorts of opportunities that seem bizarre and strange, Take them. Because God has set this church on a journey. People call it a spiritual journey. I, I, journey is not a word I resonate with. Adventure is the word I resonate with. Adventure, because we don't know where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen. But we do know God knows what's going to happen, and we do know we follow a God who's going to provide for us at every moment along the way. Amen? Yes. There is not going to be a moment in our lives in which we are truly lost because we follow a Lord Whose business is finding people and finding us? To be honest, God may already be in Colombia. <laughs> and God is just simply waiting for us to get there. Hmm. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks. Thanks for this rich text from Acts chapter 10, the story of Cornelius. We're so thankful, God, for his conversion, for Gentiles being welcomed into the life of your church. For all of us here, many of us, we are Gentiles. And so, God, we give you thanks for this rich story, so much we can learn from it. We pray, God, that you'd help us to continue to keep our vision outward, outward toward the people in this world who desperately need to know of your saving love and grace. Keep us focused outward so that we might know and understand and be blessed by the richness of our brothers and sisters around the world in different cultures and languages and how they might shape and impact who we are. We praise you and glorify you, God, for you are the God of every nation, of every tongue, of every tribe. There is no place you are not. You are everywhere. And so, God, we look forward to meeting with you where you are. We love you, Lord. Thank you, God, for the abundance of this church, its willingness to stand by our eight missionaries. May we pray and support them in every way so that they might be not only protected but blessed by the power of your Holy Spirit. For we pray and ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.